All right, this morning we're continuing our study on the attributes of God. We're particularly working through attributes of God's goodness. And this morning, uh, we are going to dive into the love of God. Now, I know that we could say this about any attribute of God, but I feel a level of inadequacy to talk about such an overwhelming topic such as God's love. I want to open with the familiar lyrics from the third verse of the hymn, The Love of God by Frederick Lehman. He writes this, If we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, what Lehman is saying in those words is if the entire ocean were ink, and the entire sky was paper, and every man on earth had a pen in their hand, the hymn writer says, To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. An ocean filled with ink is not enough to write out the depth of God's love. So for the next 35 minutes, I'm going to probably fail to do God's love justice, okay? Let's set our expectations accordingly as we tap into something that we will plumb the depths of for all of eternity. We will plumb the depths of God's love for all of eternity. And yet, God's word is filled with helpful meditations on God's love for today. We get to think upon some of those together over the course of the next few minutes. Let's dive in to defining the love of God. If you didn't grab a handout, there are some in the back. You're welcome to grab those. I'll just walk through the structure of what we'll be talking through this morning. We're going to begin by defining the love of God. Now, the love of God is a difficult topic to define because there are many ways that Scripture speaks of God's love. It it speaks to um, a diversity of, of, of different senses of God's love, different even objects of God's love. Scripture affirms that God loves himself in the Trinity. Scripture affirms that God loves his creation, that God loves believers, even that God loves unbelievers. But all of those are not the same type of love. Said another way, God does not love everyone and everything in the exact same way. Various objects of God's love require nuances of or emphases of the nature of God's love depending on that object. And we, we do this too, just like scripture does. I presume that your love for your family and your love for your favorite food are not the same thing. And yet it's not wrong to say that you love them both. It, it's, it's certainly foolish to assume that you mean the same thing when they use the word love for, for each of them. But it's not wrong to say that you love your favorite food and also that you love your family. But, but we can mean different things by the use of those words depending on the object. So with that in mind, the fact that Scripture has various objects of God's love, that makes it a little bit difficult to define. So I'm going to give an overarching definition. I'm going to define God's love this way this morning. I think this captures all that we are hoping to cover this morning. God's love is his benevolent disposition towards himself and his creatures. God's love is his benevolent disposition towards himself and his creatures. God has a benevolent disposition towards himself in in the Trinity and towards his, his creatures, his creation. 
want to acknowledge as we begin to flesh out this definition that you cannot describe the manifestations of God's love without seeing his other attributes. You cannot isolate God's love without touching on other attributes that we've already covered in this study and that we will continue to cover in this study. His love is demonstrated. It is seen in his mercy. His love is seen in his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, and more. These, these all drive home the message of God's love and, and our, um, our evidences of it. His love is demonstrated in his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, and more. I want to speak, just before we we get into what God's word specifically has to say about this, I want to speak to a couple of errors in defining God's love. Uh, These are often thrown around. Just want to make sure that we're clear on what we're talking about this morning. Often you will hear it said that love is the essence of God. Love is the essence of God. I think that's, that's a bit of an error in defining love. We talked about this earlier in our study. This, this line of thinking is taken from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, which says that God is love, which is a true statement about God and one that we'll center on this morning. God is love, but some have taken that to say that when Scripture says God is love, that that should be seen over and above his other attributes, that love is Love is the essence of who God is. And he has these other attributes that flow from his love, but God is love in a way that God is not grace or God is not mercy or God is not justice or, or any other attribute that, that we could put forward. I think that's wrong thinking about the love of God. We warned against this tendency early on in our study, in the introduction to our study on the attributes of God, that it's wrong to present one attribute as God's chief attribute to say that love is, is over and against the other attributes, definitional to who God is, or that it is his ultimate attribute, places an emphasis that Scripture simply doesn't make. Scripture says that God is many things. So as we wrap our minds around this definition of God's love, his benevolent disposition towards himself and his creatures, that's different than saying that God equals love, or to flip that and say that love equals God, which some have said in light of 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Another error that can be made in how we think about the topic of biblical love is that agape love is the essence of divine love. Um, this, this often gets thrown around that agape love is, is the pinnacle of love in Scripture, and so divine love, agape, is a Greek, one of the four Greek words for love. Um, and that, that word gets thrown around a lot. That's an oversimplistic understanding of divine love. There are multiple Greek Greek and Hebrew terms that describe God's love. And even beyond that, there are many texts that describe God's love that don't even use the word love, but it's clear evidences. We'll see some of those this morning. So agape love being the goal of divine love is an oversimplification. Uh, We're not going to define God's love simply that way this morning. And the last thing I would add to this is the, the third thing that you see there under errors in defining love is a point that's often made in regards to our love, and it's an important point that needs to be made in regards to our love. But there can be a bit of a false dichotomy in this third error in defining love, that biblical love is a choice rather than a feeling. We often say that in regards to how we love one another or how you may love your spouse, that it is a choice you make to give up of yourself for the good of another rather than a feeling, pushing back on mere emotionalism in love. And that's an important and a biblical message. But the reason for that distinction is because of our sinfulness. We need to be loving even when we don't feel loving. Well, with God, no such distinction is necessary. 
No such distinction is necessary with God. Divine love is not this cold, emotionless decision that is void of feeling with God. God's love is not just a choice that he makes towards us. It is, again, an internal disposition that he has towards us. There is divine affection. There is divine affection. It's not just a choice, though, though it certainly is that. It's not just a choice that God has made. It is a way that God feels about us, about his creatures, about his creation. There is divine affection in love. So just want to be clear as we're defining, because these are things that often get thrown around. Love is the essence of God. Agape love is the essence of divine love. Biblical love is a choice rather than a feeling. Uh, There are elements of truth to all of those, but not how we should be defining divine love in our study of God's attributes this morning. Okay, with that in mind, God's love is a benevolent disposition towards himself and his creatures. Let's look to his word and see this fleshed out. God's word speaks of multiple objects of God's love. It speaks in multiple ways about God's love. And we're going to work through um, five objects of God's love in the the prove it section of your handout. We're going to begin by observing God's love for all of creation. God's love for all of creation. The Bible doesn't use the word love to describe God's relationship with creation, but the benevolent disposition with which we're finding love is evident all across the word. God has a benevolent disposition that is evident towards his creation. God created the universe and he was and is pleased with the work of his hands. He takes pleasure in creation. Creation declares his glory. And he loves it. He provides for his creation. He cares for his creation. All of that flows from his love, his benevolent disposition towards his creation. Listen to these words from Psalm 104, verse 31. Psalm 104 is about uh, God's, God's work in creation, his intimate involvement in it. Psalm 104 verse 31 says this, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Let him rejoice in his works. Said another way, let him love the work of his hands. Take pleasure in it. Psalm 145 verses 9 and 16 say this, the Lord is good to all. Much overlap between the goodness of God that we'll see next week and his love. He's he's good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is good and kind to his creation. He shows mercy not just to believers. He shows mercy to all of his creation. Understand scripture presents God as not indifferent towards his creation. He's concerned for it. He cares for it. I love at the end of the book of Jonah is God and Jonah are having this conversation about whether or not God should have destroyed Nineveh. And one of the arguments that God uses against Nineveh, against Jonah is not just that there were many people that filled Nineveh, but he says, the city's full of animals. You want me, you want me to just wipe out all of the animals? It's, it's like such an unexpected statement. It's the last words in the book of Jonah where we catch a glimpse of the fact that God, God loves his creation. He takes pleasure in it. 
He cares about it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says that God causes the sun to rise on all men. He shows blessing and care and kindness and mercy to everyone. He sends rain, Jesus says, on the righteous and the unrighteous. These are common graces of God that flow from a love, a benevolent disposition that he has towards his creation. In Luke chapter 12, verses 24 to 28, Jesus is speaking against the tendency to worry. And he says, consider Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds, Jesus asks. He then goes on and describes the lilies of the field and how God is the one who is making them beautiful. He's, he's literally providing for the needs of the birds, providing for the lilies of the field. God cares about the birds. God cares about the flowers. Not a sparrow can fall without him knowing. Now, certainly God does not love all things in the same way. But scripture does speak to God's benevolent disposition towards his creation, his provision, his care for all, man, plants, animals, etc. That's one sense of God's love in God's word. There's a second sense, a second object of God's love that we'll see, second point in your handout, and that is God's love for himself. God's love for himself. This is a Trinitarian love, love within the Trinity. This is an eternal love that has forever existed in perfection between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian love is most evident in the upper room discourse in John 14 through verse 17. You're welcome to turn there. I'll cite a few verses in John 14 through 17. We catch a glimpse of this divine love, this Trinitarian love between specifically in this text, the father and the son in John chapter 17, verse 24. John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus says to the father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. You, Father, loved me. Jesus is the one speaking in this text. He's praying to the Father. You loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before creation? What was God doing in all of eternity? In one sense, the answer to that question is, is a mystery. But this text tells us that what God was doing in all eternity was the Father was loving the Son. That they were eternally existing together, bound in love, existing in perfect fellowship and love, I believe, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Before anything existed, there was God. There was God who existed in Trinitarian love with the Son and the Spirit. We see this communicated through the life of Jesus when Jesus was baptized and also when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told that a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son whom I love. That is Trinitarian love on display. This is my son whom I love. And this, this Trinitarian love is not just from the father to the son. We can look at John chapter 14, verse 31. John chapter 14, verse 31, which tells us 
Jesus is speaking here, and he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Jesus says, I am living in obedience to the Father so that the world would know that I love him. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. Scripture does not state explicitly that there is love between the Spirit and the Son or the Spirit and the Father, but I think that it's a, it's a, a fair implication that we can draw. I think we can say with confidence that the Spirit loves the Father and the Son and vice versa. Now, this Trinitarian love is something we're not given many details about. There's not much more that we can say about this except that it is. We're simply told that the Godhead is bound together in love. This is a perfect, relational, sinless love. Difficult for us to even imagine, but it, it was forever. Now, does God the Father love God the Son in the same way as he loves, for example, the animals in creation? The answer clearly to that is no. That there is a depth to God's love for the Son that is different. It's different than his love for his creation. And yet, love is clearly displayed in both of those trajectories. There is no higher love than the love that the Father has for the Son. Understand this. There is no higher love conceivable than the love within the Trinity. That is divine love, unstained by sin, divine love that is given and received. There is no higher love than the love that the Father has for the Son, that the love that the Son has for the Spirit, and the love that the Spirit has for the Father. So, Scripture speaks to God's love for all creation. Scripture speaks to God's love for himself. Let's move on to the third category. Scripture also speaks to God's particular love for believers. Scripture also speaks to God's particular love for believers. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul refers to the church as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly beloved. He identifies the church as a group that is holy and dearly loved by God. Now, this is distinct from God's love for all creation. We would certainly fall under the category of God's love for all creation, but Scripture speaks to a particular nuance and element of God's love that is directed towards the church. Believers fall under that. This is a special category of God's love. We are loved as God's chosen ones. God specifically chose to love believers in a special and unique way. He specifically chose to love believers in a special and unique way. In Zephaniah chapter 3, the prophet says this of how God will one day respond to repentant Israel. Which is just feel this particular love that he has for this people. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. It's a beautiful expression of God's love as he looks to, to repentant Israel and is, is singing loudly in rejoicing over them. Again, divine love is not this cold and emotionless choice that God makes. He smiles at his children. He rejoices over them. They make him glad. There is 
joy in his perfect love. On that text, Matthew Henry writes these words. He says, the great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. He finds joy in it. He finds pleasure in showing this particular love to believers. Micah chapter seven says that God is one who delights in love. He loves to love. He rejoices over his people. The doctrine of election teaches that there are some that God has chosen to set his salvific love upon. In the Old Testament, we're told that God set his love upon Abraham in a unique and special way. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we're told God is for us. That's just, it's such an amazing statement. God is for us. So who could be against us? That's his love. That's his love. He is at work for our good. In fact, just a few verses before, Romans 8, 31, Paul says that God is working all things together for those who love the Lord. He's working all things together, specifically for those who love the Lord. That's his love for his people. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Understand that God is not working all things together for those who do not love him. His love for believers is a particular love. It's a unique and special love. He's not working all things together for good for those who do not love the Lord, but his sovereign plan is working not only for God's glory. We often talk about how God's sovereignty works together for God's glory, but this text says that God's sovereignty is working together for our good. For our good. That's his love. That's his love. It's, 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 it's crazy to think of the love of God who is for us, who is working all things together for our good. It's, it's, it's crazy that God would love us because we've done nothing to deserve it. We do not deserve this divine, perfect, special, unique, benevolent disposition that God has directed at his people should cause us to wonder. I want to, please turn to Deuteronomy 7. I want to zero in on this text for just a minute because as we circle the topic of God's love, you quickly find yourself asking why. Why would he choose to show such grace due to no, no thing that we have done? We've not earned it. We have not earned God's love. It can't be done. We get a small insight into why God has chosen to set his love upon particular individuals in Deuteronomy 7. Look at verse 7. Speaking to Israel, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people's. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. Pause there for just a second. He says, God, God, God chose Israel. He chose them. He chose specifically to love them. Out of all the people, he particularly chose to set his love upon them in a unique and a special way. And in this text, he's, he's clarifying like, God didn't choose you because you were impressive. God didn't choose you, Israel, because you were greater than all the other peoples. 
Why did God set his love on you? Look, keep reading. Verse 8. Why did God set his love on you? Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In those verses, Moses tells the Israelites, I love you. God loves you, rather, because he loves you. It's like the most satisfying, unsatisfying answer imaginable. Why, why did God choose to set his love upon his people? Because he did. I love you because I love you. The ultimate demonstration of God's love for his people takes place at the cross. John chapter 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no man than this that one would lay down his life for his friends. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Some have tried to emphasize Jesus' obedience to the cross, Jesus' obedience to the Father, rather, at the cross, and said things like, Jesus wasn't thinking of you at the cross, he was thinking of the Father. It was in obedience to the Father that he went to the cross. And that, that's an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification. He gave up his life, Ephesians 5 says, because he loved the church. That is the ultimate demonstration of God's particular love for believers. If you want to catch a glimpse of the depth of God's undeserved love for you, his benevolent disposition specifically to you, look to the cross. Another element of this particular love that God has for believers is his sanctifying work in our lives. Ephesians 12 says that the Father disciplines those that he loves. He stretches them, he grows them, even places a heavy hand upon them because he loves them. The Lord's sanctifying work in the life of a believer is a work of love. Let's move on to another category as we see the multifaceted depths of God's love in Scripture. The fourth category that's presented is God's yearning love towards unbelievers. God has a particular love for believers, and yet he also, Scripture presents a yearning love that God has towards unbelievers. This is easy for us to miss, but I think Scripture clearly portrays this. While there is a special and unique love that is expressed towards believers, it's wrong to conclude that God doesn't love all men. That's a wrong conclusion. God's love is demonstrated to all in his salvific stance that he takes towards unbelievers. God has a salvific stance towards all men that demonstrates his love towards all men. And to see this in God's word, we don't have to go any further than the most well-known verse in God's word, John 3, 16. For God so loved, not believers, for God so loved the world. He loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son. In this verse, the love of God in sending his son is expressed not only to believers, but to the whole world. His love is expressed to sinners. His love is expressed to unbelievers. 
Pastor Aaron spoke on God's wrath last week. This same chapter, John chapter 3, will affirm that God's wrath abides on those who do not obey the Son. God's wrath abides on them who are not living in obedience to the Son. And yet, simultaneously, it was in love, a benevolent disposition towards mankind, care and kindness and concern that God sent Jesus to die. Both of those are present in John chapter 3. And and those feel like they're at tension in our minds, but John doesn't feel that tension. Some would say that God's love for the world is only a love for those who will believe one day. It's, It's not what Scripture teaches. Ezekiel 33 says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure when the wicked die. And in light of that, he begs Israel to repent. Ezekiel asks Israel, why will you die? God doesn't take pleasure in the, in the death of the wicked. God has a salvific stance towards all men. His love is demonstrated in it. God's love is not just expressed towards those who will repent one day. It's expressed to those who will not. In Hosea 11, God says to unrepentant Israel, most of whom will die in rebellion, I cannot turn my back on you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read these words, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is directed in one sense. His love is directed in one sense to all sinners because he sent his son to make a way for the forgiveness of sins, which is available to every man. That brings us to a fifth category, fifth way that God's word speaks to divine love. And that is a sense of conditioned love based on obedience. A sense of conditioned love that is based upon obedience. Now this is perhaps an unexpected category. We have to speak very carefully here, but it it is another way that scripture speaks to God's love. If we have a unilateral Um, understanding of God's love, then this category becomes problematic. Okay, so let me be clear on the front end of this. God does not cease to ultimately love a believer when they sin. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Okay, so let that be said. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. His salvific love that we've already spoken of in that third category cannot be removed. And yet... Scripture says that there's another sense in which we can step outside of God's love. Now, this cannot be a salvific love, not his ultimate love towards believers. And yet, Scripture seems to speak to this reality. Psalm 103 declares that God is abounding in loving kindness. That's that's his love. He's abounding in it. God has placed that love upon his people. And yet, the the psalmist follows up that statement with this. He will not keep his anger with us forever. He won't keep his anger with us forever. So even those upon whom God's love is ultimately expressed, there's there's a point in time in which there is also can be anger that is felt, which cannot mean that God's ultimate love has been removed, but there are senses in which God's love is not felt or experienced in the same way. His love is specifically felt and experienced in unique ways. As we obey him, he blesses obedience. 
Psalm 103 will continue to say that God's mercy, God's compassion, God's kindness, God's blessing is for those who fear him. Jesus told his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Now again, nothing can ultimately separate us from the love of God, but Jesus simultaneously says that there's a sense, a nuance of God's love that we can step outside of in disobedience. Jude gives this command to the church in Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you wait for Jesus to return, keep yourself in the love of God. On this text, John Bunyan writes this. Living a holy life is a way that a man keeps himself in the enjoyment and comfort of God's love. Remember how we defined God's love. It is a benevolent disposition, a benevolent disposition that God has. For believers, we saw in Zephaniah 3, God is rejoicing over them. He's, he's glad in them. He smiles upon them. And yet, simultaneously, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that our sin is displeasing to God. He's rejoicing over believers, and yet sin is displeasing to him. Does God approve of you as a believer? If you are saved, yes. But he does not delight in you when you sin. We feel his disciplinary hand according to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, ultimately, even Hebrews 12 clarifies that disciplinary hand comes from love. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Ultimately, even that disciplinary hand comes from love. But simultaneously, there is an impact on our relationship with God. Said another way, when we sin, there is a limited sense in which God's disposition towards us changes. Not an ultimate sense, but a limited sense. It's not his disposition of forgiveness, but his disposition of rejoicing, of approval, of, of love in that specific sense is something that we need to continue to obey to remain in. That's why we should be careful with statements like, God's love is unconditional. In the ultimate sense, that's certainly true. That is often a completely true and fine statement. But D.A. Carson, a well-known theologian, warns against that phrase with these words. To cite the cliche, God's love is unconditional to a Christian who is drifting towards sin may convey the wrong impression and do a lot of damage. Such Christians need to be told that they will remain in God's love only if they do what he says, unquote. God's salvific love is unconditional. It is not earned. But this category, uh, this category suggests a sense of God's conditional love. Okay, so scripture speaks with wide breadth to various nuances of God's love. What do we do? What do we, what do, we do with these? In the remaining few minutes, I want to turn to a few texts that I found especially helpful and challenging to myself as we seek to apply these limited thoughts on God's love. First of all, think upon God's love. Think upon God's love. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. As believers, we must think upon God's love. In this text, Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. And I want us to see what he's specifically praying for. We're dropping into the middle of this prayer. But Paul is praying, starting in verse 18, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ 
which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus, and he says, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of the height and the depth of God's love, the breadth of it. He's praying that they would think fully upon the love of God. This is what he hopes the church at Ephesus will grow into, and it's something that we should pursue, to think regularly upon the breadth and the depth of God's love, to simply, his terminology here, he's, he's almost lacking for words. He says that you would comprehend that which surpasses all knowledge. It surpasses the ability to know, but I'm praying that you would grow in your ability to think upon and to know these things, to know what cannot be exhausted, God's love. The second application is related to the first, as we think upon God's love, which should be a discipline that we pursue, we need to be amazed, amazed that God's love is directed for you, directed towards you. Be amazed at the depth of God's love for you. I want to show you a text, John chapter uh, 17. I said earlier that there is no greater love than the love that the Father has for the Son. There's no greater love than the love that the Father has for the Son. I want you to listen to these words from Jesus to the Father. Jesus says, I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says, I want the world to know that you love believers with the same love with which you love me. Think about that statement. I've heard one theologian articulate it this way. God does not love you less than he loves his own son. It's an amazing reality to consider the depth of God's love for you, that he loves you with the same love with which is directed towards his own son. Jesus says, I want the world to know that you love them even as you love me. Final application. It's clear in God's word is to love one another. To love one another. First John chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said to his disciples, Even as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We've talked about these attributes of goodness, which are communicable attributes. They are attributes that we can mimic God in a limited sense in. And as we study the love of God, it ought to drive us to love one another, even as Jesus loved and gave himself up for the church to seek to give up of ourselves for the good of those around us. Let's think upon God's love. Let's be amazed at the depth of God's love for us. And let's seek to love one another in obedience to the divine example that's set before us. Father, your love is amazing. It is overwhelming. It is undeserved. Help us to be amazed, continually thinking and meditating on the fact of your love 
that will plumb the depths of this attribute among many others for all of eternity, but keep us even today fixated on your love and worshiping you for it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.